to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for the week of August 30, 2020. Applications for the second annual KCB Technology Grant are now being accepted. The grant covers both hardware and software-based assistive technology, upgrades and maintenance agreements, subscription services, computers, and other standalone electronic devices. KCB will match up to 50% toward the purchase of a device or service. The maximum amount of the award is $750. The tech grant is only available to individuals who were members of KCB as of March 15, 2020. The application deadline is October 1. For more information and to download an application, visit https colon slash slash kentucky dash acb dot org slash grants dash and dash scholarships. Author Debbie Green, author of the book Debbie, was our featured speaker at last week's roundabout. Listen on page two as she shares experiences about losing her vision moving to the eastern Kentucky mountains, serving as a rehabilitation counselor, and writing her book. There are two articles on page three. The first outlines the changes recently announced in the free minutes available from IRA. The second article compares the nutritional value of white potatoes and sweet potatoes and will be particularly interesting to diabetics. Thanks for listening to this week's Sound Prints. Page two. Let's go ahead and begin. Let's start with having Debbie tell us about her book, uh, some information about the book. Uh, Debbie, if you want to share how you how you wrote it, how you published it, and all that, I know that things have certainly changed today. But it would be interesting sure. to hear the process you went through and tell us about the content of the book because I think that's very interesting too. Thank you again for letting me be here, and I absolutely. What am open to any questions at any point. I was in my um, mid-20s. I am 71 right now. Um, I was in my mid-20s when um, uh, my uncle actually was working at a Mennonite publishing house. <laughs> I grew up as a Mennonite in central mm. Pennsylvania. Um, and he worked at this Mennonite publishing house and uh, he had just retired and he he said, I think you should write, write a book. And, and my first reaction was, are you kidding? I, I can't do that. I started losing my sight when I was eight. Lost to vision in one eye at that point and, um, from uh, a condition called uveitis. They were able to keep it from spreading to my good eye for a while. But after, uh, through my high school years, I gradually, my vision just gradually got worse and worse. I was able to go to public high school and started in college. By the end of my freshman year, my vision had gotten bad enough that I couldn't drive and, you know, I had to drop out of college and learn Braille and all of that. Yeah, I, I, went, I went on back to school and, and got my degree. I wanted to be a, have an elementary education major, but with my vision issue, I was, school was not going to let me do that. Uh, so I, I did social work. I did sociology. Then I moved to tent to Kentucky, and I was in Kentucky when my uncle proposed this to me. We we sat down. He kind of acted as an agent, uh, like like you what 
if you publish a book today, you really need an agent. He he became my agent, and he. Uh, what was interesting is he he said let's let's outline the book. So he said I think people want to know about Braille. They might want to know about mobility. They want to know you know but um, you know activities of daily living. We we identified you know ten or twelve areas where he felt like you know the the public would be interested in knowing how I came to adjust to in those specific areas. And so I, uh, I, I did that. It took me, it took me four or five months. Now, remember, this was back in the seventies and nothing was talking then. Some of you guys probably weren't even alive. <laughs> the only way that I could write, because I had to have it in print, was on a regular typewriter. And of course, I couldn't see what I was no typing. Um, so what I would have to do is think about uh, ahead of time about that particular chapter, kind of outline it in my head, maybe write some braille notes. But when I actually sat down to type, I found a block of time that I knew I would be uninterrupted um, because I had to stay focused. <laughs> and so I would get up at four or five o'clock in the morning. I had a, uh, I was, I was, had a roommate. Uh, she and I were, um, shared a little apartment. Um, and I would get up at four or five in the morning and I would just, I would just write, um, for, you know, for two, two plus hours. Um, and, and again, I couldn't step away from the typewriter because I'd lose my train of thought. I had to just stay focused on what I was, <laughs> what I'd said last, you know, but I did that over a period of, you know, uh, and then I'd wait a couple weeks, and then I'd write another chapter, and and I ended up taking those those rough drafts to a friend at the vocational school where I was working at the time, and and she they retyped it for me. So I covered all of the areas that that my uncle had said to cover, chapter by chapter. You know, I talked about Braille. On that chapter, I talked about mobility in that chapter, and I, and I sent it all to him, put it in the mail, sent it all to him. He called me when he got it, and he said, uh, this isn't going to work. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, I did exactly what we talked about. And he said, I need you to tell stories. Tell stories about yourself, about your experiences, your failures, your struggles, how... And and I said, I'm not sure I want to be that vulnerable. And he said, well, if you don't, don't bother writing. If you don't want to be that vulnerable, don't bother. You know, this information that you gave me, people can look, they can look it up. Of course, in those days, it was in an encyclopedia. This is just facts. That's not what we're looking for. I need you to tell your story. So it took me it took me a while to decide whether or not I really wanted to be that transparent and and finally then decide that I did and that I did want to do it and I and it felt like it was taking a huge risk because I thought you know I might just I might just lay my feelings out there and somebody somebody might criticize me or laugh at my you know <laughs> I had no idea how that would how it would come across and 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 he said that's that's a risk you gotta take and if you don't if you don't want to go down that road then it's okay but then don't plan to write. 
for publication. So so then I then he then he sent he sent it all back and he said you need to just start it all over again. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's what I did. And this second time around, you know, that that I I I thought about the stories in my life that illustrated those issues. So the chapter on Braille was still about Braille, but it was about how I related to it and how I struggled with whether I wanted to learn Braille or not and, you know, and some of that. And and the thing that was that was surprising to me is it, it became very uh, cleansing for me because I would – there would be some times when I would be writing and, and again, I, I – I didn't know at that time in my life, I did not know um, any other blind people, okay? I didn't have a blind community. I'd gone to a regular college. I had a rehab counselor who was blind, but other than him, who, of course, he wasn't my friend, per se, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have a community like you guys are. Um, and I would write, and then there were times that I would just, I would just sit and cry because it was so it was so raw. You know, the feelings and the emotions that I was processing uh, were so raw, you know, and, and transparent at the time. And it became a real a real cleansing kind of process for me. So I I did I did the whole book again, you know, and. Of course, the whole process, I mean, we're probably talking from the time we first started talking until I sent him this final draft, you know, it could have been a year, you know, because, um, and again, it was back when I was in my mid-20s, I was single, uh, I wasn't even a rehab counselor yet then. So that's that's how it got started. I mean, that's how the book came out. It was a, it was a great process, and it's it's uh, available from BARD. I mean, not BARD, yes, it's it's a BARD it, you can you can download it from Bard now. I just I just did that about six months ago and reread it. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> this is crazy because um, you know it's, again it's back in the seventies, so there's some it's dated. There's parts of it that's very dated, but uh, but a lot of a lot of it took place there in Eastern Kentucky in in Hyden. Um, when I first came to Kentucky, my first summer there was at in um is that Leslie County? Yeah. Um and so some of the stories uh happened there. Some of them were in hazard. Um but it but it's it just it just chronicles how the and, and if you're born blind, you know, this is it's a whole nother process uh of you know, accepting and adjusting to blindness, but when you can when you can see and then lose your sight, that's a, that's another whole process too. So, so that that's that's what this was about: the losing my sight and adjusting to that, and and deter and and accepting, you know, that you have worth even though you're blind. You know, you you still are valuable. And and how how do you fit into the world now that you have to that you are going to be so different from everybody else? And so. That's that's kind of my story. Since that time, I knew, of course, a lot's happened. I I got married there in Hazard, and um, 
and I had a little girl, and then I was only married about 12 years, and then Bruce and I split up, and then I moved to Elizabethtown in the mid-'80s. And I was here. I am still here. I was worked at the Department for the Blind in Elizabethtown here until 99. Then I retired from state government. I went back to school and got what I needed to be a licensed professional clinical counselor. So once I retired from state government, for the next probably six years, I worked on getting more graduate work and, and getting my license. And so I have a little counseling practice at my church now, and I'm a licensed counselor. Debbie, this is Adam. And uh, in Pennsylvania, was the area that you grew up in a rural area uh, or mountainous? Because eastern Kentucky, you know, is certainly mountainous and rural. So uh, yeah, it was, was that a it change was, for you? Yeah. In, no, it was small town. It was small town. Um, so Hazard was was that type of town, you know, where there would be sidewalks downtown but not out in the, you know, not out where you live, not where the houses were, you know, no sidewalks. But, yeah, Hazard was very similar to the town I grew up in. So it felt it felt very similar. Um, and I, I really enjoyed Hazard. It was a good, good place. So you didn't have any culture shock there. <laughs> No, the thing the thing that I that I really tried hard uh, in in Hazard and you guys from Eastern Kentucky can kind of if you're from Eastern Kentucky it's wonderful but if you come from outside and you guys can verify this um, it's hard to fit in. Is that would you guys think that's correct? Yes. Yeah, because you don't speak the language. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I tried, I tried really hard. I'd read books, you know, I'd try to get myself prepared. And, and I, and I thought, okay, I am going to be the exception. I'm going to be the exception. So I'm going to move to Eastern Kentucky and by golly, I'm I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to fit in. And I thought I was doing pretty well. I mean, I'd been there a couple of years and I'd made a lot of friends. I was involved in a church and, you know, and, 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 and until one day, Somebody said, so, um, who was your daddy? <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm done. I'll never, you know, this going to probably take three generations till my granddaughter or my grandson can answer the question, you know, that my grand, you know, my daddy was, grew up in this county and, you know, because my daddy was a Zook, a Mennonite preacher from central Pennsylvania, so, you know, I, I was cooked at that point. <laughs> but I had, I have a lot of respect and have wonderful memories of Hazard, that's for sure. I mean, did you know people in Hazard when you came to Hazard? What, what brought you there? Um, I, one summer, I went to a Mennonite college in Virginia. I took a summer course. And the summer course was called Summer Appalachia Seminar. And we we were assigned, we there's probably about twenty five of us in the class, and we we went to that school in Harrisonburg, Virginia, um, for a, a week, and then we were all assigned 
to various locations in eastern Kentucky. Uh, they did a fabulous job of finding a location for me because this was, I was having vision problems. I didn't have a cane yet then. Uh, I had learned Braille, um, but I could see enough to get around, probably not safely, <laughs> but I was getting by. Um, but they assigned me to teach Braille in Hyden at the Leslie County Health Department. And so what what they did was was find blind individuals from Leslie County who wanted to learn Braille, and they and wow. they brought them into that office, uh, and and I was the Braille teacher for the summer. Well, somebody in Perry County who was blind, her and see I did that for the summer. Then I went back to Pennsylvania because I had one more semester to finish to get my degree. Someone from Hazard heard about a blind lady who taught Braille over in Hyden last summer. Her name was uh, Lenny Merrill. She contacted the, <laughs> the principal of the vocational school, uh, Walter Prater, and said, there's a blind lady, yada, yada. And they they tracked me down, and I got a letter up in Pennsylvania from the Hazard Vocational School saying, we want to offer you a job. We'll pay you $5 an hour, and you we can only hire you for 20 hours a week. Will you come? Well, at that point, I was just thrilled to have a job offer. <laughs> so, And I had met. And when I was in Leslie County, I had met a couple that um, that I had stayed in touch with. So I talked to them, and they said, well, you can come and stay with us, and, and we'll help you find a place in Hazard. So that's what I did. I, I actually came down. Um, I, I, came, I flew down into Lexington. Uh, they met me at the airport and drove me to Hazard, and then I stayed with them for a week or two. And then they helped me find a, a, a room to rent that was uh, two or three blocks from the vocational school. And I rented that room. I talk about that in the book, the room that I rented. And, again, just just paid, was just lived with this lady and just rented a room. <laughs> and and uh, was able to walk back and forth to school. And I, I got rides a lot of the time, too, but. Um, that's how I ended up in Hazard. Isn't that interesting? From the the long way around, people talking to people, and yeah. and it was interesting because when I went to the vocational school, my job they told me my job was to recruit blind individuals or people with visual disabilities, recruit them, and um, and teach them what they needed to know so they could be a student at the vocational school. Okay? Now, we're, we're to, I, don't, I had one student when I went there, my, my, my friend Lenny, like I told you. And she had been blind from birth, and she had never learned to read. She did not know Braille. She had never been to school because she was probably in her 50s then. And, and that was not – Blind people didn't go to school back then. 
So she came to school, the vocational school, every day. We started from scratch. And then one day a week, uh, they assigned a person from the vocational school to to take me. They, we, we, we tracked down names. Uh, we got names of individuals who were who were visually impaired, who were not coming to school. They were in their homes, and and we made home visits to talk to them about coming to the vocational school and learning what they needed to learn so they could get into the regular classrooms. And but then see what I had to do is I had to make build a connection with the with the instructors. So one person that came wanted to do woodworking. And and of course, you know, I think blind people can do anything. And so I I have have to go down to the instructor at the woodworking shop and, and me a blind person walking in, by this time I have a cane and introduce <laughs> myself and say, you know, I've got a class, I've got an individual that I'm going to that teaching and I and they want to be in woodworking. And I would like to talk with you about how we can make that happen. And and it was like are they blind? Yes. Heck no, they're not coming in this class. What are you talking about? You know, and and so then I had to kind of talk them down and say, you know what? I think I think that you should maybe rethink that. <laughs> so the other the other area that um, I, I finally talked them into it, you know, and and it worked out fine. The other thing was um, was um, um, clerical. You know, and, and that worked out pretty good. I had a couple individuals that, you know, wanted to learn to type. You know, and of course the instructor said, "How are you? Are, they're blind." Yes, and <laughs> they want to type. Yes, it's it's ideal for blind people. You're not supposed to look at your keys anyway. It's a perfect job, you know. And so that was part of my job, you know, was to convince the sighted people around there that blind people could do stuff. <laughs> so I, I worked at the vocational school for four and a half years and then and then got an offer from the Department for the Blind. The Department for the Blind was just opening an office. They didn't have an office in Hazard. And they were just opening the office. And again, someone had heard about what I was doing and contacted me and said, we'd like to offer you this position as a rehab counselor. And of course, I'm still I'm still working just 20 hours a week at five dollars an hour, and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So, I I went with Voc Rehab and heard Department for the Blind at the time. Never looked back. Let's add them again. I'm curious on some of the names. Uh, did you know Mike Hall down there? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. As a matter of he, fact, uh, I hired I hired Mike Hall because I was after I was the the counselor there for a while. Then I got they needed a they needed a supervisor and so I was the next one in line. I got I got promoted and uh, to be supervisor of the and at that time then they had the de the department was divided into four sections and I was the supervisor over the eastern quarter of the state and my call was I uh, was he in Prestonburg Prestonsburg I think yeah he still is is he my call is an awesome has been just awesome over the years so. Good. Really yeah. good. He was a great yeah. guy. We used to joke because he, of course, with his accent, someone would hear him and they'd say, I would say, Mike Hall. And they say, no, his, his name's not Mike, it's Mac. And I said, no, <laughs> it's, it's not Mac. 
Yeah, it is. He told me his name was I'm, I'm Mac Hall. You know, he was, he was saying Mike. No, he was saying Mac. I'm telling you. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I'm high when you if anybody sees you again. Hold on, dude. Bill, tell tell Debbie what kind of soft drink you drink. Just tell Bill, her, what Bill. kind of coke do you, what kind of coke do you drink, Bill? Diet Coke. There you go. <laughs> and, Are we right, Debbie? Yep, there we go. There you go. And also, uh, my call has uh, more recently been on the Kentucky School for the Blind Advisory Board. Debbie, what? I'm yes. interested to know. Tell us how people can get your book, and um, it, it is on Bard, right? Yes, it is. And I just um, I just downloaded it about a month ago. Like I said, and reread it. So yes. Mm-hmm. And my name was Zook. Z O O K at the time. So, uh, as a matter of fact, if I'd had my act together, I'd have had the number for you. I might could do that while you guys are talking about something else here in a minute. I, I, I can give it to you to go to DB0891 I downloaded it and I listened to it. I had a lot of Memories about things I went through and struggling with with different things uh, uh, with with my RP. Uh, I think the uh, the one story that uh, really brought back brought back most memories for me was the the one about the table. Okay, so Debbie, tell us the story. Well. I, I was I was a horrible person. I was horribly bad. I was I was very poorly adjusted. Okay, I was the worst. Uh, I did not. Uh, now this is remember this. I'm in college. I am in the process of losing my sight, um, and I could still see, sort of to get around. I was probably maybe twenty one hundred, might have been twenty two hundred, right in that range. And I did not want anybody to know that I had a vision problem, okay? Um, I would. I told my professors um, because I was sitting in the front of the room, but when I was around campus, I didn't have a cane. I had my books and audio on cassette tape, remember that? Um, and, and I had readers, but, but walking around, I did not have a cane, and I did not want anyone to know. So uh, I would could get through the line okay, and I would just walk with my tray until I kind of bumped into a table, um, and then and then I would just say hi there, whether to see if anybody was at the table, okay, and and if no one answered, then that was cool. I sat my tray. If someone answered, then I would say, can I join you guys? And I have no idea who. So I, I had done that. I set my tray down. And then I and I had kind of was still oriented enough where I knew that the drink machine was off to the right. And so I set my tray down and then I walked over toward where the drink machine was and I found it, um, got what I wanted, and then when I turned to come back, I apparently got my angle off. And oh. I walked to where uh, the table should have been and there was no table there. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, I don't know where I am. And so then I 
then I, I have to just keep walking. <laughs> and then I bump into a table, but I know that's not my table, you know, because, you know, there's people sitting there and there wasn't anybody at my table. And here I am with my glass of milk, you know, and I'm, I'm just lost. I have no idea where my tray is. And, and I don't know what to do uh, because I don't want anybody to know I'm lost. Everybody knew I was lost, but I was pretending I didn't, but, you know. And, and again, I, uh, Bill, you might be read this since I have, but um, uh, there was a, one of the professors happened to be noticing that I was, that I was in trouble and, and came over and said, can I help you? And I said, yep, I, I don't know where I am. I'm looking for my table. And he said, ah, well, there's a table over here with nobody sitting at it, and there's a tray. That might be yours. I said, yeah, it probably is. <laughs> and, so, and so he walked me over there. But it was those kinds of experiences when I finally graduated from college. And by that time, my vision was bad enough that I, it was totally, I knew I was totally unsafe. Um, that, that when my rehab counselor said, I think you need to go to a rehab center. And um, I said, you bet. You know, because I'm going to kill myself if I don't do something here. So I ended up going to the Greater Pittsburgh Guild for the Blind, which is right south of Pittsburgh, um, to get my rehab stuff. So I was there for 13 weeks. All right. So yeah. who else has some, something else? This is Adam again, and I uh, okay. wanted to check in with uh, Joy Couch is on here, and he is from Hazard, and, of course, Bill uh, from up there in uh, Lawrence County, Jenkins, and uh, that That's area. Right. But I was wondering, uh, you, you mentioned... Fletcher uh, County. Fletcher, I'm, gotcha. Fletcher. I, yes, I'm very sorry, Bill. I, I do that. Yep. You know, you mentioned a couple of names, uh, like the principal at the school and uh, some other people, and I was just wondering if they were family names that, like your friend, uh, was it Lenny? I think. Lenny Merrill, yes. Yeah, Lenny. And whether Joey or Bill would recognize last names or anything like that from that area. Joey said no. he does not recognize them. Okay, yeah. Okay. And, and he, I, yeah. Joey's a lot younger, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But, yeah. But, yeah. you know, so, it's just like the couch name itself is very. Well, yes. <laughs> very disaster region. Anybody else have any questions for Debbie? Uh, what was that uh, DB number again? Zero eight nine five nine. Okay. Do a question. Uh, oh, is that Jay? Yes. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead, Jay. Um, getting your book published was that an easy task, or was that quite hard to get it published? It was it was easy for me because um, because uh, my uncle was my agent. Um, if I had sent the book in in its original form, uh, it would have been rejected. Okay, and the publisher might never have told me why. <laughs> um, but because my uncle was my agent, uh, he. He said, you know, he was he was honest with me and told me exactly what the problem was. Um, I have I would like to publish again. I would like to write some more. 
um, and I have attended some um, Christian writers conferences, and I'm and I'm told that that's the key. You you need to find an agent because publishers these days uh, rarely take a book just raw, you know, out of you know that someone just sends in. Um, and and apparently these days it's it's a little more challenging because there is a lot of um, self publishing, and and that's and that's another I mean that's a good thing too. A lot of people just self publish, and and that means that you you send it to Amazon or wherever, and you can send it in, and they'll and you see the difference is this: if you're going to self publish. That means you pay for it up front, you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars. You pay for everything, and then and and you design it. You design the cover. You design. You're in charge of everything, and then they publish it for you. They print it for you, and then you say, "I want 500 copies," and then they send you a boxes of all your copies, and then you're responsible for selling them. And then you get a hundred percent of the of the money. That's that's self publishing. If you get it published by an editor, by a book publisher, which which in my opinion is the better way to go, but it's a little harder. You have to you write your book or you write the first couple of chapters, and then you send it into the publisher using an agent's agent if you can get find a good one, and and then the publisher says okay. Sure, I'll publish it. And then if they publish it, it's no money out of your pocket up front. They will help you. They will decide the cover. They decided my cover. They actually decided the title. They decided the chapter titles, you know, and they they made a lot of choices. And then they paid for the printing costs. And since it was a publishing house, they they did the marketing. It appeared in their catalog. You know, when they sent out the catalog to their to their customers, it appeared in that. And so they did they did all the marketing. Now that means though that I only got ten percent of the profits. So that I didn't get a hundred percent of the profits. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the payoff. Um, that's that's the price you pay. And here's the deal. You can expect, if you're planning to be a writer, you can expect to get rejected multiple times. And they and the stories are just the Harry Potter author got rejected, you know, multiple times um, before someone took a chance on on her as an unknown author, you know. And, of course, mate, she made a killing. But, but that's the... That's the challenge if you're gonna if you're gonna want to write is being willing believing in what you have to say that 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 the, the world needs to hear this story that that you're willing to to resubmit it over and over until someone until it clicks with somebody. I have a question. Sure, I do too. Um, my cousin had written a book, but it was like what you're saying through a publisher. Yes. And um, they put it on Amazon and 
he's having a hard time getting it into large print or even read for talking book. Um, was that part of, is that something that you would want to make that a part of your deal with the publisher? I don't know that putting in talking book would be the publisher's problem. Isn't Adam? If a talking book library or a national library service uh, wanted to record it, they would have to get copyright clearance from the publisher, but there wouldn't be any money involved. And uh, if if they want to get it on uh, recorded, they you know, could certainly just contact our Kentucky Talking Book Library, Barbara Pinnacore, and uh, you know, I'd, of course, they have volunteer readers up there, and so there there would be a good chance that it could be recorded. I was going to say that could be listed on uh, Bard as a Kentucky volunteer produced book. It, you know, it wouldn't be NLS, but it it would be listed on Bard. Um, and in fact, um, the uh, uh, Debbie, the book, was recorded by the Dallas Taping for the Blind volunteer group, but uh, you know does have an NLS uh, number. But our Kentucky Talking Book Library, when in '76 uh, started our volunteer recording program, and we recorded the book. And um, I don't know if they still have a master copy of it or not, but um, you know they uh, when NLS decided to redo it, they they assigned it to Dallas, uh, which at the time I guess was a little more professional, uh, quote you know volunteer professional. But uh, but I was disappointed that our uh, volunteer production was not used because they had good volunteers. The other option today, and they go back and um, and take books. It doesn't just have to be one published right now. But Bookshare also um, takes, They if the publisher sends Bookshare the file, if Bookshare can get the file, it's available almost immediately. Okay. And, uh, and there's I don't think there's any charge uh, for them to post uh, a, a file. Or okay. if the author wants to send Bookshare the file. Now, it may need to be cleaned up. Uh, sometime they used to, some of them used to be in pretty bad condition when they would get posted because the, the scanned copies, if they actually scan the copy, that is not good because you get all these errors and things in the books. But um, many, many, many of the books today are taken from the publisher's files. And um, when books come out, whether they be textbooks or they be, you know, fiction books or biographies or whatever, uh, they can get into Bookshare pretty quick. And Bookshare has probably twice as many books as does Bard. So that's another option. Sometimes books appear in both places. Okay. That's great. And, of course, if they're a text file like that or digital, Carla, um, it could be put out in Braille, regular print, large print, or anything, right? Audio. Well, the the Bookshare file, when when a file is on Bookshare, it is available in a Braille file, a DAISY file, uh, with or without images. And um, so it can be printed out in large print or it can come out in an audio file. Well, there you so go. So the Bookshare files have all these different options. Yeah. And, and they kind of, I guess they kind of um, work on, they kind of 
you know, create those different, uh, those different uh, ways that it can be downloaded, the different files. Right. That's not what the publisher does, but um, the Bookshare does that. I have one last thing I wanted to uh, ask, too, and in the process of listening, you mentioned uh, woodworking, and I wanted to say that Bill Wright's brother, Andy Wright, uh, came to the Kentucky School for the Blind for uh, a short time, but he got very interested in woodworking, and Mm -hmm. Bill can tell you he did a very good job, and I, I don't know if you had any contact with Andy Wright, but uh, Bill, didn't, didn't he do a lot of woodworking? He did He did a lot of woodworking, and Debbie um, might have been his uh, counselor. Debbie, what, what years was you in rehab? I was at the vocational school from 71 to 75-ish. And then I was a rehab counselor from 75 to pro- to probably um, 80. And then I was the supervisor over there from 80 to 84. Any other questions for Debbie? Carl, this is Deanna. So, Debbie, this is Deanna Scoggins. We know each other kind of through some people at some churches. Okay. Uh, are you in Louisville? Yeah, I'm in Louisville. Okay. So, so my question is, well, I just downloaded the book. Um, okay. I'm going to find it on a, I might find it on audio, I mean, on a, see if it's on Apple Books or something, because I would like to read it in Braille. Um, I just discovered Apple Books this week. I mean, I knew about it, but I didn't know it would be this easy, and I really thought you couldn't read them, but you can. And in Brown, it's so good. I had a Bible study book that wasn't anywhere, but Apple Books had it. I clicked on the button, and there it was. Oh, my goodness. Debbie, I think you are a great storyteller. (laughs) (laughs) Debbie, sometimes we have done things on um, kind of uh, sharing our stories or um, preserving our stories a little bit. And um, we've done a little bit of genealogy stuff but uh, but we've we've done a lot of sharing our stories and you you just I mean I was just sitting here thinking boy what what great stories and you know it's I really liked what you were saying about telling the the story these things from as a story not just as facts that people can look up so it's really good Um, I hope everybody has enjoyed that Page three, policy changes for use of IRA. As you probably know, IRA is an app that can be placed on your smartphone and allows you to call an agent to assist you with things that require vision. For example, what color is an item? Reading a pill bottle, reading cans or instructions on packages, finding something that you've dropped on the floor, helping with work-related problems. IRA, for the last year, has offered free five-minute segments that you can access as many times as you want during a 24-hour period of time. It also is a paid subscription service. These policies have changed as of August 25, and we are going to bring you the information that is now on the Frequently Asked Questions page on the IRA website.
Question. Who can use IRA for free? Answer. Anyone who has an IRA account, regardless if they are on a plan or not, and resides in a country where IRA provides full service. These countries include USA, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. People without a monthly subscription receive one free call every 24 hours, and people with a plan receive one free call every four hours. Imagine all the things you could do. Question. I don't pay for a plan. Can I use IRA for free? Answer. You sure can. You can make one call up to five minutes in length every 24 hours for free. You can also utilize many of our IRA access offers for free. Check out Apply a Free Access Offer in your app for more information. Question. Want to learn more? Answer. Then connect with an IRA agent and you can ask all your questions and thanks to your free call, it won't cost you a thing. You can also contact our customer care team, USA and Canada, 800-835-1934 for more information. Question. I heard that IRA supported an unlimited number of free five-minute calls for all users. Answer. On Tuesday, August 25, 2020, 6 a.m. Pacific Time, the policy for free calls changed, as described in the August CEO letter. Question. How many calls do I get? Answer. Monthly subscribers can make one free call every four hours, and everyone can make one free call every 24 hours. Question. As a paid account, can I still get five minutes free at the beginning of every call? Answer. No. Instead, you will get one free call up to five minutes in length every four hours. However, once those five minutes have been used, you are welcome to use your monthly minutes to continue working with the agent. Question. What happens if my call isn't picked up by an agent? Answer. The call is not counted. Only calls that successfully connect with an agent are considered. Question. How do I know when I call again? Answer. You may find the time of the next available call via the Smart App Usage tab, which has been updated to provide this information. Question. If I do not use all five minutes during a free call, can I call back sooner? Answer. No. Free calls are counted by calls, not by minutes. As long as your call connects with the agent, the call is registered, and you will need to wait until your next available free call as described in how many calls do I get? Q&A. Question. What happens when I am a paid user and I make a call of over five minutes and I have an available five-minute free call? Answer. The first five minutes will be funded by the five-minute free call. The remaining minutes of your call will be deducted from your paid minutes. The next available use of the five-minute free call will be shown in your app. Question. What happens when I am a paid user and I make a call of over five minutes and I do not have an available five-minute free call at the time I place the call? Answer. All the minutes you use will be deducted from your paid minutes. Question. As a paid user, do I get a choice of when I use my free call during each four-hour period? Answer. No. It will be automatically applied when available. Question. As a paid user, what happens if I am out of paid minutes, plan, or credit minutes? Answer. As a paid user, you can always purchase more minutes 
or make use of the five-minute free offer. The phone number to call Ira for more information is 800-835-1934. And finally, this article was listed on the Living with Diabetes email list and is from EverydayHealth.com. The title is Sweet Potatoes versus White Potatoes. How do they compare? By Jessica Megala, M-I-G-A-L-A, medically reviewed by Lynn Grieger, R-D-N, C-D-C-E-S, last updated August 18, 2020. Nutritionally speaking, sweet and white potatoes are very similar. Potatoes are one of the most maligned foods, but spud lovers among us can rejoice. Both white and sweet potatoes, when prepared properly, can be healthy for you. Quote, in general, potatoes are packed with fiber, and white potatoes have more potassium than a banana, says Courtney Darsa, R.D., who's based in New York City. Just like any food, potatoes can have a healthy place in your diet, she says. What really sets white and sweet potatoes apart is their beta-carotene, which is the antioxidant pigment that colors sweet potatoes a beautiful orange, says Darsa. Beta-carotene is indeed healthful. People whose diet included the highest level of beta-carotene had a 17% lower risk of premature death from all causes compared to a group who ate the least amount, according to a May 2016 study published in the journal Scientific Reports. However, essentially, says Darsa, some people consider sweet potatoes a whole grain and view eating a white potato akin to having, well, potato chips or french fries. A baked, boiled, or roasted white potato is not the same as refined, heavily processed foods. Any type of potato is a nutrition-rich whole food. Nutritional Differences Between White and Sweet Potatoes For the sake of being able to compare them head-to-head, the following is for 100 grams, approximately 3.5 ounces, of each potato per the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food Data Central. This amount is less than a small spud, so keep that in mind when eating. Calories There are 125 calories in a white potato versus 108 calories in a sweet potato. Protein There is 1.9 gram of protein in a white potato versus 1.3 grams of protein in a sweet potato. Fat Both a white and sweet potato have 4.2 grams of fat. Carbohydrates. There are 20.4 grams of carbs in a white potato versus 16.8 grams of carbs in a sweet potato. Fiber. There is 1.4 gram of carb in a white potato versus 2.4 grams in a sweet potato. Sugar. There is 1.6 gram of sugar in a white potato versus 5.5 grams of sugar in a sweet potato. Potassium. There is 372 milligrams of potassium, or 7.9% of the daily value, or DV, in a white potato versus 219 milligrams, or 4.7% of the DV, in a sweet potato. Vitamin C. Both a white and a sweet potato have 12.1 milligrams of vitamin C, which offers 13.4% of the DV. Comparing the two, you'll see that while white potatoes have more calories, 
It's only by 17 calories, which is really negligible. There is slightly more protein in a white potato, a few more grams of carbs, and 70% more potassium compared with a sweet spud. Potassium is essential for cardiovascular health as it counteracts sodium to lower blood pressure, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. If you are on a potassium-restricted diet because of kidney disease, check with your doctor to see whether white potatoes are appropriate for you. Sweet potatoes went out for the fiber with an additional one gram of the digestion-friendly and filling nutrient. Also, both types of potatoes provide a good source of vitamin C. If you are eating less fruit, which tends to be naturally rich in vitamin C, or limiting your intake, a potato or sweet potato is a good way to get more of this vitamin, says New York City-based Lauren Antonucci, A-N-T-O-N-U-C-C-I, R-D-N. Vitamin C is essential for producing collagen, essential for bone health, and forming blood vessels, according to the Mayo Clinic. Even though sweet potatoes have more grams of sugar than the white variety, you can feel okay choosing either white or sweet. They both have the same number of grams of total carbs, so they will be metabolized the same way. Even if you have diabetes, you can still eat potatoes, even white ones. I'm a certified diabetes educator, and people with diabetes can and should eat unadulterated potatoes, says Antonucci. The issue usually comes into view with serving sizes. A potato can be any size it wants to grow, which is why you often see really large potatoes in the grocery store, she says. A large white potato weighs more than 10 ounces and clocks in with 375 calories and 61 grams of carbs, Per the USDA, the amount of carbohydrates in a food will impact your blood sugar, and eating a large potato may unknowingly send your glucose levels soaring when managing diabetes. Tracking your carbs, on the other hand, can help you balance your intake to control blood sugar levels, notes the American Diabetes Association. A more appropriate serving is a potato that can fit into the palm of your hand. If you can't find a spud that's small, then just eat half or split it between two people. It's rare that you'd eat a plain potato on its own. That's not only a good move flavor-wise, it's healthy too. Darsa recommends eating a carbohydrate-rich food like a potato with protein or fat in order to avoid a blood sugar spike if you have diabetes and stay full for a longer amount of time. For instance, try a baked sweet potato with sautéed broccoli, drizzled with olive oil, and a piece of salmon. There are so many ways you can enjoy a potato. Cut into strips and bake in the oven to make fries. Chop up to add a soup or puree and stir into a soup to make it creamy. Drizzle with olive oil. Wrap in a foil packet and grill. Toss into a frittata. You can even mash a steamed sweet potato and put into a yogurt bowl with nut butter. Really. You can find a way to top your spud with whatever you'd like. Just use serving sizes as a guide, says Darsa. That means two tablespoons of sour cream, plain Greek yogurt, or a pat of butter on a baked potato, or dipping roasted potatoes in two tablespoons of ketchup. 
Butter and sour cream might not be traditionally healthy. They add saturated fat. But as long as you're sticking with the recommended serving size, Darsa says, it's okay to include these on your potato, particularly in the context of a nutritious meal. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.